Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Over the past few years, we have seen a push and pull across the globe and back here in the U.S. between internationalists and those who believe in a more sovereign approach. The landscape continues to evolve and governments across the world are left grappling to catch up. I'm Maria Tsakalis. And I'm Jessica Sacconi. Today we are joined by Professor Monica Eppinger. Monica is our co-director of our Center for International and Comparative Law. The center is co-hosting a symposium on March 29th on internationalism and sovereignty with with the St. Louis University Law Journal. Thank you for joining us today, Monica. It's a pleasure. So first, let's talk about the different ideologies here. What are we talking about when we say internationalism and sovereignty? Right. So internationalism these days refers to international law, international legal doctrines, and international institutions through which states either negotiate treaties and law or through which they try to effectuate treaties and law or through which they regulate each other's behavior um, and their own behavior in these ongoing legal relationships. So internationalism refers to these interstate relations and the system of law and order that regulates it. Mm -hmm. And it typically is thought to have come about after World War II as part of our worldwide reflection on what went wrong and how we don't want that to be recreated. So what? how does that compare to sovereignty? So sovereignty traditionally is the idea that a a state, a government, by, and when, I'm, when I talk about states, I'm not talking about states in the U.S. context, right. like the state of Missouri, mm-hmm. but we're talking about national governments mm-hmm. like the United States government or the government of Canada. So um, the idea of sovereignty is that states ha- can do what they want, when they want it, how they want it, without being told how to do something or what to do by any other state. Or by any individual corporation or person. So that's traditionally the idea of sovereignty, is this Mm -hmm. sort of maximalist idea of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And there was perceived to be traditionally a tension between internationalism and sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So the perception was, if you are a sovereign state, um, this is something that went under the name of what was called realpolitik, in the 1960s mm-hmm. and 70s, after after Vietnam particularly, um, 1970s, 1980s, the idea was if you were a sovereign state, why would you sign a treaty? Why would you cede any of your sovereignty to any other state or to some s- supranational body like mm-hmm. the United Nations? We had this imagery of jackbooted thugs and helicopters coming to... <laughs> Uh, regulate us in ways that we did not prefer, and so, so, so the uh, there has traditionally been this uh, imagined uh, contradiction or tension mm-hmm. between state sovereignty and internationalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how how do we see this kind of play out in today's world? I mean, like for for me, I think the EU beyond the United Nations, but the EU. Is that an example of something? Right. So so what's interesting, There's so the traditionalist view of sovereignty has been, um, has been described by a Harvard professor named Stephen Krasner and another scholar named Robert Cohane. So 
what they would describe as this traditionalist view, they would look at people uh, in government work, so state actors, mm -hmm. really resisting mm -hmm. um, entering into treaties or abiding by treaties. At best, if you're if you believe in realpolitik, then you're very skeptical of treaty systems, and you think mm -hmm. either we shouldn't enter into this kind of agreement, or the only reason that any rational state would is if they're trying to cheat. Okay. So they're cheat or just or be a free rider. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you look at um, something like an air pollution treaty, mm -hmm. if you think it costs a little bit more for your industries to clean their air before they put it through smokestacks and put it out into the air, um, what would be great for you is if everybody else signed a treaty to clean the air, but you could be the free rider that then more cheaply produced the right. same goods for cheaper. And so, the, so there was this idea that it's a zero-sum game, that mm -hmm. it's one or the other. And an organization like the EU has completely changed that narrative mm -hmm. and has changed the rules of the game and how we perceive what's rational state behavior. Because obviously, through the EU, there have been trading systems where you don't, it's not a zero-sum game where you get a slice of the pie or I get a slice of the mm -hmm. pie. Rather, we grow the pie. Mm -hmm. Sure. And that can happen through trade, um, through uh, an organization like the EU. The EU has also um, set up regulatory procedures, for example, um, food and drug or weights and measures, mm -hmm. so that we all have a common system of regulating, let's say, what what constitutes food safety in milk products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that if I produce cheese in France, I can sell it in Germany without violating German law. Right. And, mm -hmm. and without having to go through extra procedures for every country that I want to sell in, harmonizing mm -hmm. so that... W and that looks like it makes sense to private citizens and private actors inside mm -hmm. of a country. Why it doesn't feel like we're ceding sovereignty, it feels like we're cooperating so that we ensure health and safety measures without having to jump through extra hoops. Mm -hmm. And so it makes internationalism look like not a threat to sovereignty, but in some ways an actualization of some parts of sovereignty that we like or that we appreciate. Sure. And so, so the EU is a great example of how that can happen through economic conduct. Um, something like a mutual defense treaty mm -hmm. could be another example of how that kind of cooperation might look in regards out in a security context. So something like NATO, sure, mm -hmm. an attack on one is perceived as an attack on all. Mm -hmm. So if France is attacked then we, the United States, have obligated ourselves to come to France's defense, mm -hmm. as have all other NATO countries. And guess what? Nobody's going to take a weird little swipe at France without thinking twice because they've got the rest of us to right. deal with. Right. Yeah. Nobody's going to take a weird little swipe at us either. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, it so it reduces the likelihood of conflict in the world. Mm -hmm. It makes an ag uh, what otherwise might be a would-be aggressor think twice before committing aggression. Right. And so, again, th what used to be thought of as a tension between internationalism and sovereignty, in some contexts there are new arrangements between governments that make it look like w uh, internationalism might be an enhancement mm -hmm. of some of the features of sovereignty that we like. And so that's, that's how... Uh, that's the positive side of how some of that might sure, work sure. these days. But there are also non-positive sides. Yeah, yeah. Which leads us into Brexit. Um, so as we all know, Brexit's been in the headlines for three years now, and the British Parliament is still struggling to come to 
mutually agreeable terms. So can you talk a little bit about that and what are the issues they're debating and how does this tie into this idea? Right. So um, as as we are recording this podcast, this is still a completely unresolved question mm-hmm. and is not even clear to British parliamentarians. I think that it, so we can call it a big mud puddle. And that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> and the, thank you. And the, the parts of we could sort of describe the components of the mud puddle as procedure and substance. And so some of it is substance. What does it what would uh, it look like for the UK to withdraw from the EU in terms of, for example, weights and measures. If if the UK withdraws from the EU, then does that mean that suddenly um, it will no longer abide by European weights and measures? And if it stops abiding by them, what does that mean for the for the English countryside and for mm-hmm. the milk sellers and the cheese makers? Can they actually get their products accepted as safe mm-hmm. in EU countries? So that's so substantively, there's a lot of question marks about um, under this big umbrella term of withdrawing from the EU. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. And then procedurally, this is an internal matter for the British Parliament. But how do you even get from from point A to point B if the British public has voted in a referendum uh, to uh, order its government? to withdraw from the EU, then how does that even happen? And so so Theresa May's government has been trying to negotiate agreements to withdraw from the EU in a kind of orderly process, and it took a long time for them to agree to terms with European authorities, and then she needed to bring those back and have them ratified by her parliament. Mm -hmm. And as you know, that has not worked. they have a self-imposed but still apparently real deadline of March 29th for effectuating their withdrawal, and they had negotiated an agreement. It had not been approved by Parliament. They had gone back to the Europeans, gotten some fixes and tweaks to the agreement, had brought it back to Parliament very recently. It had also not passed, and so what they were going to do was to try to lobby parliamentarians to bring that second agreement before a vote of parliament um, and try to get a re-vote on it before this March 29th so that they could exit on time with some kind of roadmap for how they Mm -hmm. were going to do that and what it was going to look like. Unfortunately, um, for Theresa May's government, the Speaker of the British Parliament, um, Speaker Breckow, has came up with a parliamentary ruling just this week that he will not schedule a vote on the agreement unless it is substantially substantively different from the last agreement that failed. And so they are running out of time to mm-hmm. negotiate something and they thought they could keep trying for votes until they strong-armed enough votes in favor, but he is not going to schedule a vote unless it's substantively different. And that means that they are in a very difficult position right now. And it may be more clear next Friday on March 29th when their deadline comes what it actually looks like, or it may be less clear. (laughs) But for those who are trying to make travel plans or business plans, Mm. uh, for those living in Britain or doing work in Britain, it is not at all clear, and it's very difficult. Your time horizon for planning is getting shorter and shorter. Um, 
the question of sovereignty internationalism comes up in a couple of different ways outside of the formal negotiations for Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, so Brexit refers, again, to the British exit from the EU. So one thing that is interesting is that it came up, uh, Brexit was put to a vote for referendum. Uh, um, and the British public voted in favor of Brexit that was seen, putting this question to referendum was seen to be an exercise in what's referred to as popular sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about sovereignty, the medieval and early modern version of European sovereignty was dependent on kings and uh, queens and monarchs. Mm -hmm. And in England, there was always a counterweight to the monarchy with the parliament. Mm -hmm. House of Lords, and then the development of the House of Commons. Um, on the mainland, on the European mainland, the idea of popular sovereignty was really promulgated through Napoleon. So it, it was after the French Revolution and Napoleon's march across Europe that that is credited uh, by historians like Faith Hillis, who studies uh, the Russian Empire and the early Soviet period, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe, the idea of popular sovereignty was brought to those other parts of Europe with the armies of Napoleon. And what did that mean? That meant that either get rid of the mon monarch or have a monarch exist in parallel with a legislature. It was thought that popular sovereignty was a way for the people of a particular state to govern themselves rather than to be governed by a monarch. Mm -hmm. And what feels like an interesting twist in the Brexit situation is that you have popular sovereignty taken even one step further. It's not that we're going to vote for a parliamentarian to represent us citizens, but rather we citizens are going to take a referendum vote on a question that would normally have gone to parliament. And then we're going to leave it to parliament and the government to negotiate its way to implementation of what we have ordered them to do. So it's, so it's a different twist. It's almost a Napoleonic twist on sovereignty, this mm -hmm. popular sovereignty and putting things into the direct hands of voters. Um, and that can, as we see sometimes in our own country, that can have unpredictable results. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions the symposium hopes to address is whether internationalism can meet the challenges of the contemporary. I feel like we've kind of talked about that a little bit. First, what do you think those specific challenges are? So it's, to me, it's very interesting because the traditional notion of sovereignty um, really is focused on borders and territory. And it's looking at jurisdictions or it's looking at state borders and defending those borders and effectuating governance within those borders and trying to throw the weight of that state around relative to other states. Um, and in looking at, at territory as an object of power, power-taking territory as its object, I'm really relying on thinking by a French thinker named Michel Foucault. And he, th he talked about power operating in a mode of sovereignty, taking t territory as its object. Something that's interesting to me is to look at states, state actors, traditional sovereignty, and how that might be um, working itself out or meeting challenges today and posing challenges to internationalism today. So part of our symposium on March 29th is going to feature a thinker from Russia mm -hmm. who talks about a concept called hybrid 
sovereignty and how that works in Russian foreign policy. We are also going to have a law professor from Ukraine. And as we know, from the Ukrainian point of view, Russia has invaded Ukraine and annexed part of its territory, mm -hmm. Crimea. And uh, it is widely thought within Ukraine that Russia is sponsoring a, ses a secessionist movement that is still continuing in a hot war right now in southeastern Ukraine in which over the last five years more than 13,000 people have died and mm -hmm. continues to this day. So we will have a Russian thinker on sovereignty and a Ukrainian thinker on sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And so they, so that for me, that will really be an interesting discussion mm -hmm. of traditional sovereignty, state versus state sovereignty, and how territory is implicated in the sovereignty games mm -hmm. and how internationalism might be in conflict with sovereignty or might point a way forward. Um, then in the afternoon of our symposium on March 29th, we're going to have a different set of international actors. Instead of thinking about states as international actors, we have three different experts um, looking whose research looks at completely different kinds of international actors. We have Dr. Julia Morris, who studies migrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. She specifically has been um, conducting research among refugees that have tried to immigrate to Australia. Oh, okay. Australia has an interesting uh, refugee processing mm -hmm. um, process by which they... Uh, may intercept people who are trying to reach Australia by boat. If you are trying to claim refugee status, they take all the refugees to an island, yep. mm -hmm. and they are processed on this island, or they're not processed mm -hmm. on this island. It takes, in some cases, years. Mm -hmm. And so she is looking at uh, migrants and refugees as international actors, actors, people who are agents who are trying to cross national borders and take matters into their own hands, which taking matters into your own hands is one way of thinking about the traditional view of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So she's looking at that kind of um, very desperate international actor. Sure. Um, second speaker in the afternoon is going to be um, Sarah Sievers, who is an associate dean at the International School at Notre Dame. And Dean Sievers is an expert on billionaires, specifically billionaire philanthropists. Uh -huh. ha she has experience having worked for the Gates Foundation, okay. mm -hmm. the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh -huh. um, she also has worked with uh, an economist named Jeff Sachs, who leads the Climate Institute at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And so Dean Sievers has dealt with very large philanthropic, large, rich, and powerful philanthropists and philanthropic organizations Imagine that you are the government, let's say, of Zimbabwe, and the Gates Foundation comes to you and offers you three things in their program. They will distribute um, bed nets to keep out mosquitoes mm -hmm. to reduce malaria infection for free, and they will also uh, vaccinate a certain percentage of your population, and they will offer one other medical service. Imagine that you want the bed nets, but you don't want the other two things. If you're the government of Zimbabwe, what kind of sovereignty do you have in regards to Bill Gates? Sure. What kind That's of a very different uh, right. approach. It's oh. a new, right. So, mm -hmm. it's a, so that kind of international actor of the international non-governmental organization or mm -hmm. the international billionaire philanthropist, in my view, poses an interesting contemporary version of sovereignty and mm -hmm. it 
contemporary version of internationalism and a contemporary challenge as well as some solutions. Mm-hmm. So the third person that we have coming on the afternoon of March 29th to our symposium is Professor Sam Halabi. And Professor Halabi is coming over from Mizzou, from Columbia. Um, he uh, is an expert in epidemics and epidemiology. So the third kind of international actor, I, we talked about refugees and migrants as an international actor. We talked about billionaire philanthropists as international actors. And the third kind of international actor are germs and microbes. And what kind of challenge does that pose? Because they don't see borders. Mm -hmm. And epidemics and epidemiology poses a real challenge to traditional sovereignty and the way that a sovereign government, if they tried to go it alone might see the limitations of that approach. Mm-hmm. And epidemics are also a new form of internationalism that is facilitated by closer connections in travel and trade. Mm-hmm. So Professor Halabi is part of the afternoon panel on contemporary forms of international internationalism and new kinds of international actors that might come under the heading of biopower and how that is either facilitated or how it cha- facilitated by or how it challenges traditional notions of sovereignty. So that's that's what we have coming up and I think it's going to be a really interesting day, really fruitful uh, set of speakers and their work will be published in the St. Louis University Law Journal so our student editors will be working closely with them mm-hmm. um, as their ideas are developed and c- written up and come into fruition. Sure, great. So just to wrap up, you talked a little bit about the Ukraine and Russia, and I know that ties into your own areas of expertise. So could you just give us a little synopsis of what your expertise areas are and um, what prospective students could really learn from you if they were to come here and take some of your classes? Absolutely. Happy to do it. So my own interest in international and internationalism and sovereignty comes in part from my own experience, my Uh, Prior to becoming a law professor, my first career was in the U.S. diplomatic service. Among other tours of duty, I served at our embassy in Kiev. Um, I was also uh, back serving a Washington tour of duty, uh, working with the ambassador for the former Soviet space. Um, That's the U.S. assistant secretary for the former Soviet space when NATO expansion was going on and helping to negotiate NATO expansion. So there's forms of sovereignty that have to do with treaties, that have to do with economic agreements, that have to do with security arrangements, that have to do with microbes and epidemiology. All of those different challenges to sovereign states I've had some exposure to and some experience in working on how to leverage internationalism to try to meet our common challenges. Mm -hmm. And um, we work together, the Center for International and Comparative Law here at SLU, we work together with our health law center, Mm -hmm. we work together with our employment law center, we work together with our experts in intellectual property and our intellectual property certificate program. We, We work together so that students who are interested in meeting contemporary challenges in a globalized world will be well prepared. And there's a lot of different opportunities to do that. And my own work experience makes it very vivid for me. And I am really excited to work on it. Thank you so much. That's such an interesting uh, topic and area of expertise where 
students could really gain a lot of knowledge in, in those areas. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today, Monica. It is a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.